I'd like to very much thank the rabbi for facilitating this shear here in Tenafly. I've heard a lot about this shul and about this community. I have a number of friends in Englewood, in Teaneck, in the area, and it's always come up in conversation, and I had the privilege of using the mikveh here in previous times, a gorgeous mikveh, so it's a very big privilege to be here now. And I want to especially thank our friend David Kaplan and dedicate the shir today for Ahavat Chinam and in honor of his daughter, Rea Adina Bat Shoshana. May the unity of the Jewish people make our world brighter through Hashem's Torah. Amen. Nothing is coincidence. Yesterday, we had Shabbos Mavorchim of the new month, Menachem Ov. And Rosh Chodesh is going to be this coming Friday, Rosh Chodesh Menachem Ov, which is the only Yortzite mentioned in the written Torah. The yards in an obvious way, the yard site of Aharon HaKohen. The Torah tells us that he passed away on Rosh Chodesh Ov, and Rabbi Nachman had a student, Rebaran, who was also a Kohen, and Rabbi Nachman told him that you have a special connection to the original Aharon HaKohen, and your yard site will also be in this month of Menachem Ov. And generally, when Tisha B'av was over, he would have a suda for his family to celebrate the fact that he knew that he had another year to go. And sure enough, his yard site is also on Rosh Chodesh Menachem Ov. The Mishnah in Pirkei Ovos speaks about Aaron Akoyen and says, Oyev Sholoim, Veroidev Sholoim, Oyev Esabriois, Omekarvon Atoira. Aaron Akoyen was extraordinary in his love for promoting peace, not just that he liked it, but he was roidev, he chased after it, he didn't wait for it to come to him, he didn't just look for it in his own home or in his own environment, but he went after it in all kinds of places. And oyevis habriois, he loved all of mankind, umekarvan la Torah. How did he do it? What was his secret to being makar people to Torah? Aaron Akoin was the older brother. Moshe Rabbeinu was three years younger than him. When Moshe Rabbeinu had to run away from Egypt because Paro wanted to kill him, the one who led the Jewish people at that time was Aaron Akoin. Years later, 40 years later, Moshe Rabbeinu returns and he's taking over the leadership of Klal Yisrael. Aaron Akoin is going to be his assistant. And Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching Torah to the Jewish people. Who's sitting right next to him? His older brother. And people saw this. People saw that the older brother, the one who led Klal Yisrael for years, is sitting by and listening to a shear of his younger brother. Which person could say, I'm not going to come? Which person could say, I don't need this? So this was one of the ways that Aaron Akon was able to encourage people to come to study Torah. Now, to go back a little bit, and this is so powerful. Avram Avinu had two sons. He had a Yitzchak and he had Yishmoel. Yitzchak Avinu had two sons, a Yaakov and an Esav. Yaakov Avinu had 12 sons, no Yishmoels, no Esavs, all perfect. All perfect. Shif the tribes of Hashem, the foundation of the Jewish nation. And Hashem put his good housekeeping seal on each one of them. Hashem put his stamp Hora Uveni, Hashimoni, the letters yud Hey of Hashem's name are inscribed on the names of every single one of these tribes to declare how special they are. And yet, we find that there was spe- they were special in many ways, but there was a test that they had that not all of them passed. They were not all the same yichus. 
they didn't all have the same pedigree. Yaakov Avinu had four wives, Rachel and Leah, who were his main wives, and then he had Zilpah and Bilhah, who were called Shvachos, maidservants. They weren't considered the same level as the other two. And the Torah tells us that one of Yaakov Avinu's sons befriended the sons of the maidservants, the other brothers didn't. The Torah tells us about Yosef HaTzadik, Vehu Nar Es Bnei Vilha Ves Bnei Zilpa He befriended his brothers who were from these maidservants. And this is one of the reasons why his other brothers took issue with him. Their position was that we're not all the same. We're not all the same and we don't, they're over there and we're over here and, and we don't have to necessarily mix. And Yosef HaTzadik looked at them, what are you talking about? We're all from one father, we're all, this was one of the issues, and then there were other issues. He told them about his dreams, which portended that he was going to be the leader of the 12 tribes, when in fact they looked at him, he's the baby brother. Ruvain is the Bechor, Yehuda is the lion. Who is this kid? Who does he think he is? And the Torah says, at one point, they were in Shechem, and Yaakov Avinu says to Yosef Tzadik, go see how your brothers are doing. He goes, he goes searching for them to try to find where they are, and he meets a person, and the person tells him, Nasu Mizeh, they just left here, they just left here. One of the commentaries points out, they said, Nasu Mizeh, they left Zeh, Zeh Zayin Hay is seven and five is twelve. They left twelve, they don't want twelve, they think eleven is enough meaning they don't want you anymore. They don't want to include you. They actually concluded that they're going to kill him. They're going to murder their brother, Yosef Hatzadik. And there are many sforim that give reasons that they came up with based on Torah, why they felt he deserved to be killed. This person who the Torah labels Yosef Hatzadik, they came up with reasons as to why he deserves to be killed. And sure enough, at one point in time, they, he comes, they see him coming, and they say, okay, the time has come, the time has arrived. The Torah tells us that one of the brothers, Reuven, speaks up, and the Torah says, Vayishma Reuven, Reuven heard their plan, Vayatzileu miyodom, and he rescued, he saved Yosef HaTzadik. Hatzala appears in the Chumash, first time. <clears throat> How did he rescue them? How did he rescue him? He said, why should we strangle him or stab him or anything? There's a pit of snakes and scorpions here. We'll throw him in there and we'll say wild animals ate him up. And So one of the great commentaries, the Orachayim HaKadosh asks, you call that rescue? You call that Hatzala? Vayatzileu? Every word in the Torah is accurate. It's measured. That's Hatzalah? And he says, yes, that is Hatzalah. It doesn't say he saved him. He says he saved him from their hands. He was better off. Yosef Hatzadik was in better company. He was safer among snakes and scorpions than he was among these great rabbis. We're talking about Shifte Ka. Why? Because a snake does not have free choice. A snake cannot go against Hashem. If a snake bites, it's only because it was instructed to by Hashem. And a human being does have free choice. Even if Hashem does not want another person to be hurt, 
Hashem allows, He lets the leash out for us. You want to you hit someone? You want to hurt someone? You want to insult someone? Go ahead. But be prepared for the consequences. There'll be consequences. And sure enough, in this case, we find that the snakes and scorpions didn't touch him. They didn't harm him in any way. Afterwards, he's taken out and he's sold into slavery. His brothers sell him down the river to the worst place on earth. Egypt is called Ervas Ha'oretz, the place of the highest degree of Tuma in the world. Eretz Yisrael is called Gavoya Mikol Ha'rotzois. It's the highest of all the lands. When we speak about going to Eretz Yisrael, we call it Aliyah. And Mitzrayim is called the lowest, the lowest. They don't get rain there. The Nile River is what sustains them. They sell them to Egypt, down to Egypt, a place of znus, a place of all kinds of promiscuity and adultery. And that's not bad enough. He ends up in Potiphar's house. And the Torah tells us Potiphar's wife wanted him. And Potiphar himself wanted to have relations with Yosef HaTzadik. This is where the, this baby brother ends up at 17 years old. He's cut off, he's taken away from his family, and that's where he goes. Sure enough, Hashem works things out. The brothers end up coming down to Egypt, and they all end up bowing to him, bowing to and acknowledging, recognizing his superiority, and, and telling him, pleading with him, <clears throat> after Yaakov Avinu passes away, that daddy said, don't hurt. He said, what are you talking about? This was all, this is wonderful. This was all part of Hashem's plan. Ki Hashem. Hashem did this to ensure the survival of the Jewish nation. That I had to come down here first and I had to take on this incredible position to become the viceroy of Egypt to ensure that even though the Jews would be in Egypt for 210 years of slavery, they would survive it and they would get out. This is what Yosef HaTzadik tells them. And the Arizal says, despite that, Hashem wasn't, wasn't appeased. And these 10 giants, these 10 Sadiqim, came back, were reincarnated as the 10 rabbis, 10 leading rabbis of the Talmud of the Gemara, whom the Roman king, or the Greek king, who studied, who wanted to study Talmud, he wanted to study Torah, and he came across this story in the Torah about brothers selling their, kidnapping their brother and selling him into slavery, and he also came across the, the fact that the Torah says that's a federal offense. The penalty for doing that is death penalty. These brothers never experienced death penalty. He said to the 10 leading rabbis of the generation, you're going to stand in for them. I'm going to murder you <coughs> in place of these 10. Now, what do these 10 rabbis have to do? The Arizal explains, I'll tell you what they have to do. Each one of them was a Gilgal, a reincarnation of one of the 10 brothers. And Hashem insisted that each one of them experience a tortuous death in order to atone for this crime, for, for not being, they, they didn't want 12. They thought 11 was enough. We don't need every Jew. We don't have to include everyone. 11 is good enough. <coughs> now we go a little bit ahead. We spin ahead to Moshe Rabbeinu. 
Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah refers to him as Raya Mehemna, the trustworthy shepherd of the Jewish people. Hashem says, Bechol Beisi Neman Hu. He's the one who I trust more than any, anyone in, in Klal Yisrael. And, and Moshe Rabbeinu is in Egypt, and he's raised in the house of Paro, and then he has to run away. But before he leaves, what, what causes him to run away from Egypt? He witnesses an Egyptian beating a Jew, beating a Jew to death almost. And Moshe Rabbeinu steps in, and he saves the Jew's life. He kills the Egyptian. There's a lot to say about it. We don't have the time. The Arizal, there's incredible reasons why this had to happen, but sure enough, that's what happens. The next day he goes out and he sees a Jew beating up a Jew. These were Dasan Va'aviram, famous names in the Torah, two people who caused major, major problems for the Jewish people throughout the time that they were in the desert. And Moshe Rabbeinu sees one of them raising his hand to smack or to punch the other one. And he says to him, Russia, he calls him Russia. Why are you why are you about to hit a Jew? Don't you know that that's not something that anyone is allowed to do? A Jew is a part of Hashem. And they look at him and they say, Are you saying that to kill us like you murdered the Egyptian yesterday? And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Oh no, Ochen Noda Hadovar. I guess people know what I did. That there's two interpretations of what those words mean. That it appears that what I did yesterday, I thought nobody saw, and here I realize that these people saw it, and they said, we're going to snitch on you. We're going to go to the king and say that you murdered an Egyptian. That's one interpretation. Rashi gives another interpretation. <clears throat> Rashi says, Nodali Hadovor Tamolov. I just got the answer to a question that I was struggling with. This is Moshe Rabbeinu saying he's struggling with a question. What's his question? Ma chotu Yisrael Mikol Shivim Umois. In what way are the Jews worse than all 70 nations? What sin did we commit more so than all the other nations? that we are being persecuted like this. This was his question, and he said, now I have the answer. I see that we deserve it. Why do we deserve it? Because if a Jew is willing to say, I'm going to go to Paro and I'm going to tell him what you did, this level of machloket, this level of disunity that a Jew can go and, and prosecute another Jew, now I understand why Hashem is so angry at us that we have to go through all of this persecution, all of this suffering. Sure enough, that suffering lasted, the suffering in Egypt lasted for 210 years. That was the first exile that the Jewish nation experienced, was Golos Mitzrayim, the Golos in Egypt. Now Hashem approaches Moshe Rabbeinu, the time has come. The time has come to put an end to all of this suffering, and you're the man for the job. What's Moshe Rabbeinu's response? Uh, he said, how much does he pay? How much does he pay? He didn't even say that. You say that this was the first exile. 
correct. Why do you call that an exile? Because even though they originally went down voluntarily and they had it pretty good, they had their borough park, they had their neighborhood, they were in Goshen, everything was going fine and well, suddenly king died or changed his colors and started avodas parech, pounding them and giving them the most difficult kind of work, giving the men the women's jobs. The Torah describes the kind of suffering that was imposed upon them. They had the numbers. They multiplied. True. Egypt was like the Soviet Union. It says no one left. Once he came in, at one time they were given liberties. When the liberties were taken out, no one ever, no slave ever escaped. No one left there. There was an iron curtain. This is what the Torah does tell us. So it is referred to as Golos Mitzrayim, the first exile. Now let's continue. Moshe Rabbeinu is offered an opportunity to put an end to all of this. His response to Hashem is, can't. I can't speak, I can't. There's a seven-day negotiation. For seven days, Hashem is trying to convince him to go, and he's looking for every excuse in the world to get out of it. Until finally, Hashem presents the winning argument. Because we see right after that argument, Moshe Rabbeinu says, okay, I'm in. What's the winning argument? Hashem said, I know why you don't want to go. Because even though you're being offered an opportunity to save thousands of people for suffering, you're not willing to do it over your brother's body. You have an older brother. And for you to come in now riding on your white horse and perform, do all of this, how's he going to feel about it? Hashem said, don't worry. This is not Yosef HaTzadik and his brothers. Your brother is something unique. When you come into Egypt, your brother Aaron Akoin is going to come towards you. He's going to see you. He's going to rejoice, not just on the outside. There are people who, when they hear that somebody else just had a major success in business, or they bought a house, this, that, oh, Mazel Tav Mab, I'm so happy for you, facially, but in their heart, I wanted that I wanted that car. Why do they have a better car? Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, that's not your brother. Your brother is the exception to the rule. He's going to see you, and he's going to rejoice in his heart, not just externally. He's going to be very happy for you. And that's when the Torah says, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm ready. And he goes to take the Jews out. Because he understood that what got us into trouble in the first place was this lack of unity among the brothers, this lack of respect, this lack of caring about another person. And Moshe Rabbeinu was not willing to participate, nothing. There's no mission important enough that I'm going to do it over my brothers. And this is why he refused and refused until Hashem promised him that your brother will not be hurt in any way whatsoever. Then he agreed to go, and sure enough, they succeeded in the mission. Eventually, they took the Jews out of Egypt. Right now, we're in the three weeks. And starting Friday, we're going to start the nine days. These are difficult periods during the year for us. These are considered to be a time of mourning when the first base Hamikdash and the second base Hamikdash were destroyed on Tishabov. World War I began on Tishabov and many other tragedies. This is three weeks or nine days or one week according to the Sfaradim. There's another period of 49 days or at least 33 days that are considered to be a difficult period of time during the year, Sfiras Omer. What happened that was so terrible at the time? Not 10, but 24,000 rabbis died in a plague. 
where it was 100% obvious to everybody, none of them died a natural death. It was a plague. It was during the spring season. During the winter, you could say somebody caught a cold, COVID, who knows what. This was spring season. The weather was perfect. No one could have any second thoughts about what this was about. A plague, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva all died. Why? Did they wear a talus? Did they put on tefillin? Did they go to shul on time? Everything. The Torah doesn't mention any area at all that they were lacking except one. They didn't realize how important the unity of the Jewish people is. They didn't treat each other with proper respect. That's the wording of the Gemara. person would say, okay, fine, I hear what you're saying, but that's one mitzvah in the Torah. There's 613 mitzvahs. That's enough to disqualify, to overshadow everything else? The answer is the Torah says yes. The Torah says yes. Hashem says, if you're not going to be respectful to each other, I don't need your tefillin, I don't need your mezuzah, I don't need your mikvah. This is what the Torah shows us. This is in the Gemara. This is not for Hasidim or Misnat. This is universal. This is authentic Orthodox Judaism. The message is very clear that this was the response by Hashem because this one item was not in place. This plague stopped on the 33rd day of Yomer, on Lag Bomer. And Lag Bomer is a time of the greatest display of unity in the Jewish nation. What is the largest gathering of Jews on earth in the year? It's Lag Baomer in Miron. There's a place called Miron that's much smaller than Tenafly, as far as I know. It's called Kfar Miron. It's a village. It's not a city. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a tiny little Kfar. And to that Kfar, pre-COVID, there were a half a million, 500,000. It was approaching three quarters of a million people that came there over a period of two, three days to go to the kever of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. That's where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Elazar are buried, and Jews from all over Israel, from all over the world. People made plane trips from the United States, other places, to be in Israel for Lag Baomer, to be there for this awesome celebration. Who are these half a million people that come? The answer is, who's not? Every single different type of Jew is represented there. Everyone, from the seemingly most religious, least religious, everyone, everyone, all kinds of people gathering there for Lag Bomer. Manishtana, Manishtana Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai from Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. We had many rabbis in the Gemara. What's unique, what's special about this rabbi? This rabbi was a student of Rabbi Akiva. When those 24,000 passed away, the Gemara says Rabbi Akiva didn't quit. He showed us a tremendous lesson. A person loses everything. As long as they're alive, there's still hope. Rabbi Akiva started again. The Gemara says he went down south and he met five young rabbis and he taught them. And those five rabbis are the ones who really established the Talmud that we have today. One of them was Rabbi Meir, one of them was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai put together an A-team. He had nine students besides himself, and he taught these students, and not only that, but he was permitted, he was given permission to teach them secrets of Torah, the Zohar, the Tikkunei Zohar, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, Anan b'chavivuta talya milsa. We are going to succeed where my rabbi was not successful. Not because I'm greater than my rabbi, but because we have something among us that they didn't have, unfortunately. We love each other. 
we have a deep love and respect for each other, the students and the rabbi and the students with each other. Therefore, we are going to succeed where they failed. And therefore, this day, Lag Baomer, which is the yard site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, has become over the years, it, it, this, is, this isn't something recent, hundreds of years ago, during the time of the Arizal in the 1500s, people would travel by camel, by donkey, from Syria, from surrounding countries, to be in Meron for Lag Baomer. Over a thousand years ago, the Arizal lived in the 1500s. The Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, was one of the outstanding leaders of the Jewish people who expanded the teachings of Rabbi Shema Bar Yochai. And the Arizal told his students at one time, we are ready to bring the Mashiach. We can have Mashiach now. We're going to travel from Tzvat to Yerushalayim. They were up in Tzvat, up north, to welcome, to greet the Mashiach there. A disagreement broke out among the wives. The Arizal became aware of it, and he said, we lost the opportunity. He will no longer come in this generation. And sure enough, the Arizal passed away, his students passed away. This is 500 years ago, approximately, in the 1500s. Imagine, imagine, think about all the suffering that the Jewish nation has been through in the past 500 years. Imagine if we could have saved all of that if there wasn't an argument, if people realized how critical it is for us to unite. Unite doesn't mean that we all think the same, we all think alike. We're not supposed to think alike. If Mashiach does not come before Tisha B'av, we're going to be reading Eicha, Megillah Seicha. Eicha begins with the words, Rabasi Bagoyim. Rashi says, Rabasi Badeos. Two Jews, at least two opinions sometimes three or four opinions, even among two Jews. That's okay, nothing wrong, as long as we recognize hatzad that there's mutual ground. We can disagree on many things, but that doesn't mean that we are not children of the same Father. We believe in the same Hashem, and we share many important things in common. It's no trick to find what we don't share in common, what we disagree about. That, and to focus on that, that's going to take us where it took us in the past. If we can find the mutual ground, the things that we agree upon, and be able to respect each other's differences. If a person is open to hear my opinion, I'm happy to share my opinion with him. If a person is not open to share my opinion, there's no reason to share it. He's entitled to his, she's entitled, people are entitled to have different opinions. Nothing wrong. We find it throughout the Torah. Nothing wrong with that. Obviously, what we're speaking about here is a drop of a drop in the ocean of what the Torah tells us on this topic about unity among the Jewish people. And even in Rabbi Nachman's own teachings, I'm going to give two examples of how much he emphasized this point. In chapter 34 in Likut Maran, those that are familiar, we have a website called BreslevTorah.com that has all of Rabbi Nachman's teachings explained in English, in audio form, in video form, for those who want to see the full detail of it. In one of the famous chapters of his teachings, he says that the basics of Judaism require three connections. A person needs to connect to Hashem in three categories, in three areas. Category number one is the tzaddik. Throughout the entire Torah, from the beginning of time, Adam Arisha, when Hashem created man, Adam, the Torah tells us that the angels came to study from Adam. 
Adam taught the angels. Hashem blessed him. He was a, a creation. Adam wasn't born. He was created, handcrafted by Hashem. He was able to, he had a higher level of recognition of Hashem, even than the angels. And it says he taught them. His wife, Chava, what did she call him? Honey bunch? She called him Rebbe, my rabbi, my teacher. He was the first tzaddik, the first teacher. We go generations later, the Torah tells us, Eile told us Noach, Noach ish tzaddik tomem hoya The Torah tells us there was a generation of people and they angered Hashem enough to get Hashem to pull the plug on the entire world, to destroy the entire world, except, except Noach and those who are attached to him. Even that Hashem was prepared to undo the entire world, there was an exception. There was a tzaddik, and those attached to him were spared, were saved. We go on to Avram Avinu. We're told that there are cities of Sodom and Amorah, terrible, doing incredible, terrible things. There's an Avram Avinu who gets up to bat, who gets up to try to defend them, to negotiate with Hashem, to do everything in his power to afford them an opportunity to do tshuva, to repent. Maybe, maybe Hashem will be willing to give them another chance. And we see this throughout the entire Torah. There are people who struggle with this word, the word tzaddik. There are people, people that study Torah and they think that this is part of a different religion. In other religions, there's a concept of a God and a human being. Judaism doesn't have that. There's only Hashem. Those people obviously haven't studied Chumash or Gemara or most of the Torah, or if they did study it, somehow they're not seeing it. But if a person looks honestly and clearly, this point, this concept of tzaddik is everywhere, all over the Torah, in the Chumash, in the Navi, David HaMelech, throughout and throughout the entire Talmud. So that's one of the major connections that a Jew needs to come close to Hashem. The concept of rabbi and student in every generation. Perkiovos begins, Moshe kibel Torah misinai umesorali Yehoshua. The Yehoshua lesken. There's a masoras, there's a tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation. The second connection is friends. Friends. The Nekudas Chaver, Rabbi Nachman says. Judaism cannot be practiced by yourself. The first mitzvah in the Torah, to produce a child. You could be Moshe Rabbeinu, you could be Rabbi Akiva. You can't do it without a partner. It's husband and wife. It, it requires two. And regarding the study of Torah, the Gemara says that a person who has the opportunity to study with a rabbi or to study with a friend and they choose not, I don't need anybody else, I can read myself, I can read it by myself. The Gemara says is Chayev Misa, Cherev al-Habadim v'no'alu. A sword hangs over the head of the loners, people who think that you don't need friends, just the opposite, I don't want to talk to anybody, I don't want anybody to disturb me. That's not a Jewish concept. It's not a Jewish concept. The Torah speaks about, again, the concept of chavrusa, the concept of rabbi-student, the concept of beroiv om hadras melech. The more people, the greater the respect for the king. On Purim, it comes to reading the Megillah, you have a choice. There are two synagogues. One has 30 people, one has 
70 people, go to the one with 70 people because it's a greater respect for Hashem. The more people that gather together to join together in a mitzvah, it's a greater honor to the king. Unless you have a specific reason why you're going to the smaller shul. In the larger shul, you won't be able to hear the Megillah. There could be exceptions to this, but there is a general concept that the more Jews that get together, it's a greater honor to the king. We find that when Haman first suggested to Achashverosh, let's kill the Jews, Achashverosh said to him, I guess you skipped school, you didn't go to school, or you didn't pay attention. You're not the first person to come up with this great idea. There were many other people who came up with this idea to destroy the Jews, all of them failed. Why do you think that you're going to succeed? Haman said, I'll tell you why. He said, they are am mefuzor u mefoirad. They're not united. There's disunity among them. That was Haman's speech. There's pirud, there's lack of unity. Achashverosh said, you have a point. You have a point. Then we have a chance. Then they're vulnerable. When they're not united, they're vulnerable. All kinds of disasters can come upon us when we're not united. When Esther, when Queen Esther and Mordechai unite in order to try to save the Jewish people, and now the grand finale, she's about to go before Achashverosh. Haman has risen to the highest level stature in the kingdom. He's Achashverosh's right-hand man. Everyone is bowing to Haman. And now Esther is going to go before Achashverosh in order to plead the case for the Jewish people. She says to Mordechai, what does she say? Leich kenois es kol hayehudim hanimsim she doesn't say Leich Kenoises Hayehudim, Leich Kenoises Kol Hayehudim. Get everyone together, gather all the Jews together, and fast. And don't eat for three days. And we'll pray together and we have a chance. And sure enough, they were successful. They were successful. So again, Haman's secret weapon was our disunity. The fact that we celebrate Purim today, and what's the message in Purim? What is the underlying message in Purim? It's all about unity. Megillah, the more people, Baroivam Hadrasmel, get everybody, invite everybody to come here the Megillah. Charity, Matonas Levyoinim, give charity. Charity means bringing together the rich and the poor, two opposites, but that's not enough. That's not enough on Purim. On Purim, we take it to another level. People who are not rich and poor, people who are neighbors, people who are both rich, two rich guys, two poor guys, shalachmonas. I don't need your cake. I have my own cake. And I don't need your chalk. I don't need your fruit. Don't bother me. Don't ring my door. Don't keep ringing my doorbell all day. And I got to go give back shalachmonas. That's Purim. That's the celebration. That's what brought about the downfall of our most powerful adversary. The Torah says the Jews had many different adversaries. Amalek is the worst. Rashis Goyim Amalek. Haman was a descendant of Amalek. And the Jews at that time had been in exile for 70 years. We were out of Israel for 70 years. They were involved with non-Jewish women. There were all kinds of things going on. It wasn't just Stam why this calamity almost happened. We were in a very low place at the time. And Haman knew that and was ready to take advantage of that. But again, the tzaddik, Mordechai and Esther, were able to step in. They, they read between the lines. They knew what could save the Jewish people. And she said, Leich kenois es kol get them all to get everyone together. And then it can overshadow all the sins, the idol worship, everything, everything.
Rabbi Nachman passed away when he was 38 years old. He contracted tuberculosis when he was 35. And the doctors said he had a few weeks to live. They didn't expect him to continue. He lived for three years after that. Rabbi Nachman stressed to his students that the most important time for them to come to him is Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the day when Hashem declares what the whole future world is going to hold. There's many, many reasons given why he said that that's so important. Rosh Hashanah is so important. And on that Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Nachman passed away two weeks later. On Cholamoid Sukkot, he passed away. That Rosh Hashanah, about 600 people had gathered to Uman, the place where he was, to be there for his shir, the, the Rosh Hashanah shir. And Rab walked, his closest student walked into the room where his rabbi was, and he sees a big basin full of blood, that he had coughed up blood. From this tuberculosis, he was coughing up blood. And the rabbi turns to his student and says, should I give the shear? And he says, chas v'sham. He says, but I've been waiting for this from the summer, from the beginning of the summer. I've been looking forward to Rosh Hashanah. And look at all the people that are here. Look at all the people that have come. Who cares? Who cares? Can't do this. Impossible. And Rabbi Nachman keeps insisting. And, and Rabbi Nachman says he saw that the rabbi really wanted to do this. So he said, okay, we'll do, we'll do this. Instead of putting your chair in the middle of the shul like usual, we'll put your chair over here, right at the entrance to your room, so that if anything goes wrong, in one minute you're out of the room, you're in safety, you're in your, your own room. And the rabbi says, I'm ready, I'm ready. He's ready to risk his life to give this shear. And sure enough, this is chapter 8 in the second half of Likut Imran. He spoke for a few hours. He spoke for several hours. And one of the most important topics that he speaks about in that chapter is Shochein Toiv, about how much of a difference it makes. We know the Gemara tells us that if you have nine people in a room, who are the nine people? Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, David, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and King David. Nine, the greatest people. They can't say Kaddish. They can't repeat the Shmon Esrei. They can't read the Torah. They're stuck. Now somebody goes out and he's looking for a center. He's looking for a tenth man. And he says, can you come join us for a half hour? We want to pray. No, the answer is no. I don't have a half hour. Can you join us for 15 minutes? 10. Okay, come in for 10 minutes. But I promise you, in 10 minutes, I'm leaving. No, I'm not staying. He comes in for 10 minutes, and all the laws change. You can say Kaddish. You can say Baruch They can read the Torah. Whatever they want to do can be done, because one person came in, and he told you he's leaving. He's not staying. And all the laws change completely. That everybody knows. What Rabbi Nachman said was that if you have a hundred people in the room, if you have a hundred Jews together, and you can say Kaddish and Baruch and everything, and one more person comes into the room, he multiplies the effectiveness of the prayers, of the prayers, the Torah. It works in factorial. He explained it based on the Sefer Yitzira, one of the great Kabbalistic works, showing how each additional person that comes and joins it becomes factorial. It multiplies the effectiveness, the light, and the holiness that spread from that. And this was the message, this was one of the final messages that he wanted to leave his students with, to realize how important it is to include one more person. If one more person comes and joins, we know that the term tefillah b'tzibur, davening with, with a group of people, the word tzibur 
the tzaddik stands for tzaddikim, the beis stands for beinonim. Tzaddikim means righteous people, beinonim means intermediate, and the vav resh is urishoim. That's called tefillah b'tzibur. Tefillah b'tzibur means including everyone, top to bottom. He's not too religious for us, and he's not too irreligious for us. Tefillah b'tzibur means we need everyone. The Gemara learns from the Ketoris, one of the holiest sacrifices that was brought in the Beis Hamikdash, that had 11 spices to it. Ten of them had a good odor, a good smell. One of them, the Gemara says, had a terrible odor to it, the Chelbana. And the Gemara says, if you leave out any of them, if you leave out the Chalbana, it's canceled. It doesn't work. It will not accomplish what it needs. So this message, we, again, we just gave a little bit, a drop in the ocean of how much emphasis the Torah puts on this point of how precious, how precious is Tashem, and how important it is for us to recognize the significance of the unity in Klal Yisrael. In the Gemara, when it speaks about the, 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 this period of time, the three weeks, the nine days, Tishabov, the Gemara in Gitten, page 56, the Gemara begins a series of stories of what led to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. It doesn't say anything about tefillin, mezuzah, tzitzis, mikvah. It says that somebody made a party and he invited his friends. And accidentally, a person who wasn't his friend showed up. There was a miscommunication. The guy didn't barge in. Somebody went and invited the wrong person. He came. And now the host sees somebody who he doesn't like and he says, get out of here. And the person says, please don't embarrass me in public. Please, get out. He says, I'll pay half the cost of this entire banquet. Get out. I'll pay the entire cost of this Get out. And the Gemara says this person left, and he said there were rabbis sitting there, and they didn't speak up. They allowed this to happen. Now I'm going to go on the attack. And sure enough, this was one of the major events that led to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And the Gemara gives several stories there. If you have the opportunity, take a look. It's the Gemara in Gitten. page 56, two, three pages there of stories showing that we were lacking in this area. Hashem should help. The, the Gemara says that if all Jews will keep Shabbos, two Shabboses, Mashiach can come. There's another place where it says if all Jews will keep one Shabbos, Mashiach will come. The Zohar HaKadosh says if one community, if one shul, one group of people will get it together, They'll be united to serve Hashem. Moshiach will be able to come. Hashem should help that we should be part of that community. We should be part of the group in this shul, wherever we are, to promote achdus, to promote unity, to respect each other, to do whatever we can to help each other, and be thereby to see the coming of Moshiach, the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, Bemher Amen Amen Amen. Any questions? A question being asked in terms of how we treat a rabbi. Can a student disagree with a rabbi? Can a student interrupt a rabbi, etc., etc.? The answer is that the Torah defines these things very clearly. The Torah speaks about respect between a parent and child, that a child is not permitted to interrupt a parent. A child is not permitted to sit in, in the chair that's designated for a parent. There's a whole chapter in Hebrew law defining all the laws and as to the level of respect between a child and a parent. There's another chapter in Yoridea which speaks about respect for a rabbi, a rabbi, and then respect for your rabbi. 
there's different levels of rabbi. There's a rabbi, and there's a person who taught me, who taught me about Hashem, etc., etc. And there are many laws defining it. Basically, there is a need for respect. There is a need for respect. A student is permitted and encouraged to ask questions in a respectful way. In terms of disagreeing with the rabbi, the Gemara says that if a student opposes their own rabbi, if they go out and wage a battle against their own rabbi, they're in big trouble, big trouble. Unless, chas v'shon, in a re- we find a story in the Gemara about Rabbi Meir, one of the outstanding rabbis in the Gemara, who had a rabbi who taught him during, in his youth, Rabbi Elish ben and then his rabbi, the, the original rabbi, became an apikoris. He went off the path completely, desecrating Shabbos, committing all types of sins. And the Torah shows that Rabbi Meir still treated him with love and respect. And he wanted even to, to learn from him. And the Gemara says, how was he permitted to learn from such a person? And the Gemara says Rabbi Meir was unique in that he had the ability to discern, to know what he could accept and what he could reject from this rabbi. So there definitely is a need for respect, but a person is permitted to ask questions, to interact. If a person, I know my rabbi, my rabbi, Rabbi Rosenfeld, when he gave a shear, his policy was he would speak for 45 minutes. Since the shear was being recorded, he asked that there should not be questions. But after the shear, he definitely allowed for questions and encouraged questions. And sometimes some of the questions that were asked brought out information that was even more important that was said during the 45 minutes. Anyone else, please? Practical question. What are practical day-to-day things that we can do today to bring Avas Chinam? I'm visiting here. I live in Israel the past 37 years. I davened in a shul this morning with about 100 people. I almost didn't know anyone there. Nobody knew me. There was a little coffee room. And I went through to get coffee. And a person said, Shalom Aleichem. And it felt great. It was a great feeling that somebody who doesn't know who I am, could be he observed that I was new, he hadn't seen me before, and he felt the need to greet me. And I said to him, you should know that it makes such a difference. I travel, I travel often, and when I come into a shul and no one says hello, no one says shalom aleichem, it's a certain kind of feeling. And when somebody comes over and just says those two words, shalom aleichem, it's a game changer. It means that I'm proud to be part of this nation. I'm proud to be part of Am Yisrael. We are family. We're all family. But I say, I don't know you. Yes, you do. We all stood at Mount Sinai together. We were at the Torah Torah. We were all there together. We are mishpacha. And mishpacha, you're supposed to say hello. You're supposed to say hello. It's not, you know, that, that's an example. And on every level possible, any opportunity to welcome, to welcome, to greet, to show a, a pleasant face. Rabbi Nachman says sometimes you could be walking down the street and somebody's coming towards you and you don't realize that person decided to commit suicide. Why? Why not? Why not? Who would care? Who would care if I died? Nobody cares. And nobody, nobody cares about me. And life in this world is horrible. It's terrible. It's so, you know. And you see that person and you say, where you been? I, I can't believe it. I'm so happy to see you. You just made my day just seeing you alone, you know. And that could be, and there are actual stories like that, where a person was ready to commit suicide, and because somebody said a good word, somebody, their argument was over. You can't say nobody will care. People do care. Somebody does care enough to say, wow, it's so good to see you. 
These are examples, and the Torah, Torah gives us many, many examples. Avram Avinu, who had just had an operation, he was 99 years old, and he had a bris milah. And the Torah says, on the third day after an operation is when you feel the pain the most. And Hashem came to visit him. Hashem came to visit him. Vayera Elav Hashem. And he sees three guys. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know if they're Jewish or not. He doesn't know if they're... And he says, excuse me. Excuse me. I have an opportunity to welcome guests. And the Zohar Kodesh says, he probably deserves death penalty. Could you have any greater chutzpah than that? The whole purpose of doing mitzvahs is to connect to Hashem. Here Hashem came to see him, and he says, excuse me, three. The Zohar Kodesh says, no, 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 no death penalty. He was doing the right thing. Because even though he was making a connection to Hashem, the connection that he was making was on a lower level. The connection that a person makes when they welcome a guest is a higher level. The Hebrew word for guest is oreach. Oreach means a guest. The word oreach is oer ches, the light of the eighth level. This world is referred to by the number seven, seven days in a week, seven years in the Shemitah. Eight means we're going out of this world. We're going to a very, very high place, the upper Shekhinah. So the Zohar HaKadosh says, Avram Avinu knew that he had connected to the lower Shekhinah, that by taking in these guests, by well, he would be connecting to the upper, you know, a higher level. These are all examples to, to open our eyes, to realize how lucky we are to be part of this nation, to be family, and to keep, like, like Aaron Akoyan, Oyev Sholem, Roy Dev Sholem. Look for an opportunity to say a good word. Look for an opportunity to help someone. My, my answer is, based on what we've been speaking about here, that if all Jews become doctors, we're going to be in big trouble. If all Jews become lawyers, we're going to be in big trouble. If all Jews become rabbis, we're going to be in big trouble. Hashem created us in a way that we need doctors, lawyers, rabbis. We need people. If we don't have people studying Torah, we don't stand a chance. Absolutely. I agree. That's why I asked you. Yeah. Would the solution, or could it be, My answer and my observation is, I am living in Israel 37 years, Baruch Hashem, that there are at least three types of Jews. There are Jews for whom Hezder is the best solution possible, a combination of learning and army. And they go to the army together with a group of friends. They stay in that, in that unit, which gives them a certain strength of being able to maintain their religious values while being in the army. There's a, a, a certain large element of Jewish boys who have done that and been successful, been successful, both in maintaining their religious values and being able to serve the, to physically serve the country in that way. There are certain people who, who, who cannot go to the army for a variety of different reasons, whether it's health reasons, all kinds of different reasons where the army is not for them and they can serve the Jewish people in the way that they serve, each one in their own capacity. And there are certain religious elements that are not, that cannot, cannot 
keep the same standard as Hezder. They grew up totally different. They're Yiddish, but all kinds of different reasons why they're not cut out for that type of, that type of atmosphere. And, and they can contribute in the ways that they contribute if, if all three respect each other and all three recognize that there's a need for all three, that throughout the generations, during the time of King David, during the time... We, we had people who went to war physically, and we had people who studied Torah. And they understood that they needed each other, that both were right. Both could have been doing the right thing. That's, that's what I've been taught by my rabbis, and that's the, the feeling that How I have. The answer is that requires a level of honesty, integrity. Okay. From the individual, a person has to decide for themselves, and a person has to have rabbis, you know, who are qualified to make that kind of decision. To say when this person... Years ago, here in the States, you had many people ran up to Canada. You had many people that claimed to be going to Exactly. Yes. And that negated their need to go. Exactly. So in the overall picture, because Eric Israel is in constant dire need of protection and, uh, and what can I say, under the guise of God and you know, uh, his shina, to me, it's always been a, a difficult thing for me to understand. The answer is, because it's difficult, I prefer not to judge. I prefer not to judge, not to judge the people, the Hester people, to say that they're risking their religion by going into the army. There, there are some people that say that the army is, not anyone who goes to the army has failed, has failed the, their religion. They've turned their back on Hashem, you know, that, that kind of thing. And there are people who say the opposite, that any Jew who's not in the army is not an authentic Jew, you know, a person who thinks he can sit and learn Torah and, while my son, I'm sending my son out to the army. And, and I think it takes a certain, a certain bigger, bigger picture to be able to see that we need everyone. We need them and them and them and them. If they can respect each other, and, and, and if they're honest, obviously there's, you know, we're, we're living in an Olam HaSheker. This world is defined as an Olam HaSheker. So if we see things that, that appear to be not 100% true and honest and accurate, that's not a, that, that's not a chiddish, unfortunately. But, but for each person, each family, each community to be able to honestly decide for themselves what their position in all of this is, how they're going to make this work. Am I the chelbena? Am I the this? Am I, you know? Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. We tried. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was wonderful.